TED Audio Collective. I can't really explain what it felt like in the moment, just seeing it go. I feel like I get emotional now. It's just like, it's, it was just so crazy. I still think to this day, it's one of the greatest single sports moments in history. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Megan Rapino talks about soccer, politics, and what Colin Kaepernick did for athletes like her. Colin actually gave us, really for the first time, a mechanism to protest. I've been reading and loving Architectural Digest for as long as I can remember. The magazine and the website are the first places I go for design inspiration. So when I found out that the editors of Architectural Digest just launched the Ad Pro directory, the ultimate resource for matching designers with prospective clients, I knew I had to tell you all about it. Now, for the first time ever, AD's extensive community of homeowners and design enthusiasts can easily find and hire their favorite design professionals. The directory is a list of AD-approved architects, interior designers, and outdoor specialists that anyone in need of design services can access for free by searching by profession and location. If you're a design expert who is looking to grow your business and want a chance to be featured in AD, apply now. If you're a client seeking best-in-class design services, you can browse AD's extensive list of design experts. Want to be introduced to the best of the best? Explore the AD Pro directory at architecturaldigest.com forward slash design matters. Why do millions of people every year visit Philly's Rocky statue? Enter The Statue, a brand-new sound-rich podcast from WHYY in Philadelphia. The all-new six-part series explores a monument to the most famous Philadelphian who never lived, Rocky Balboa. You'll get to hear from me, Paul Farber, director of Monument Lab, all about what made the Rocky statue, from the aesthetics of the monument to what it means to memorialize this underdog story. So don't miss out. Follow The Statue on your favorite podcast app. Megan Rapino is a two-time World Cup champion and an Olympic gold medalist, to name just a few of her accomplishments. Her playmaking and craftiness on the field are legendary, but she's also known for being one of the rare athletes of her stature to speak her mind about politics. In 2012, she came out as a lesbian when most gay athletes didn't talk much about such things. In 2016, she took a knee during the national anthem at an international match in solidarity with football player Colin Kaepernick, and she's been deeply involved in pay equity issues in soccer. Megan Rapinoe is also an author. Her memoir, One Life, was published in 2020 and instantly became a New York Times bestseller. She joins me today to talk about her life and her extraordinary career. Megan Rapino, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Megan, I understand you do a phenomenal Jim Carrey imitation. <laughs> oh my gosh, who told you that? Oh, I don't know. I just uh, was wondering if you might be willing to share that with us today. All righty then. <laughs> uh, I do love Jim Carrey so much. I, I actually have a, a slightly funny story. I was um, at the Super Bowl last year. And, you know, you walk out, it was like droves of people. I, I I think I don't really geek out over celebrity at all. Um, I always find it interesting. It's like, what are you going to do with the picture that you, you know, chase after this person for? But let me tell you, I chased after, he was like riding in a golf cart or something, chased after him. And in just typical loser fan fashion, went to take the picture and actually turned the phone off, you know, like the off, but you didn't, (laughs) I didn't push the, the volume button, I pushed the off button. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm such a loser. This is so weird. I still have the picture. Of course, I did nothing with it because what do you do with those pictures? But it's really the only um, celebrity that I've ever run down. I just think he's so funny and so thoughtful and 
I think even what he's done sort of beyond with his painting and just his pontifications about things are really interesting. But yeah, big Jim Carrey fan growing up, definitely. You were born and raised in Redding, California. Your dad worked as a commercial fisherman, a car salesman, a crane operator, and was the owner of a construction company. And your mom worked as a dental assistant, a clerk at a shipping company, and for over 30 years has worked the late shift at Jack's Grill. And so I assume it's safe to say you inherited their work ethic? I think so. Yeah. They both of them just continue to be hard workers. We're at the point now where I'm like, you just retire, you guys. It's like, we're done with the working. <laughs> you can just live your live your lives now. Yeah, that kind of just like, you get up and you like do your job every day. And it's hard sometimes and you don't like it. And um, it's not always what you want to do, but it's, you know, oftentimes in, in service of the things that you do want to do. So that sort of makes it all worth it. You're the youngest of the family, but also have a fraternal twin sister named Rachel. And I understand when you were a child, you were shy and let Rachel speak for you. And that went back and forth several times. That sort of dynamic changed over the years. But when did you start speaking up for yourself? Yeah, it's really interesting. We've gone through these sort of ebbs and flows. Um, We're like each other's uh, yin and yang, our sort of perfect balance. So I was, you know, pretty gregarious, I think, growing up. Um, so, and when we first went to kindergarten, I was the one speaking for her. She was painfully shy. And for that reason, my mom split us up. My parents split us up once we got into first grade, pretty much all the way through And in high school, we started taking classes together just cause it was, um, you know, you don't have the same class all the time, but around like fifth and sixth grade, I think that's when like puberty started to happen. I feel like I showed up for fifth grade and like every or sixth grade and everything was different. It was so bizarre. And I could never really figure it out until, really until I figured out that I was gay. And I was like, okay, a lot. this all makes a lot more sense. <laughs> Everything is making a lot more sense now. Um, I mean, I still, it definitely, you know, found so much comfort in sports and being able to kind of just be myself there. But really from like sixth grade until college, it was, um, especially in middle school, um, I mean, quite literally like following Rachel around and, um, at like, we, we tell this funny story, like at times she would turn around and actually run into me because I was just right there. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. You're the one that's supposed to know what you're doing. So I can follow you. Um, high school is a little bit better, uh, found my feet a little bit more, but I think, you know, once I figured out I was gay, it just seemed like the whole world made sense for the first time. Totally understand. Yeah. You and Rachel were natural athletes early on, and I read that you both figured out how to crawl out of your cribs really young. And one time you did it on your own, and your mom came into your bedroom and saw that you were holding Rachel's hand through the crib bars. And so I assume you've always, always been close? We have, yes. We've always been very close. We've always kind of tag-teamed everything. It's kind of one of those things like we can fight, but nobody can say anything towards us. So that particular story, I think Rachel had gotten in trouble for something. Who knows? We were like two years old. There's a couple stories like that where one of us would get in trouble and the other one would just like basically guilt my mom into feeling so bad about (laughs) whatever punishment, you know, quote unquote punishment was coming, whether it was just being in the crib or, um, you know, I think one time Rachel was about to get her mouth washed out with soap or something, which is just like such a weird punishment. And we were basically like, you're the worst mom in the world. And she was like, oh my God, am I? And we're like, I don't know, but we're trying to get out of this punishment and don't, (laughs) don't punish one of us. So yeah, the story of the hand through the crib, my mom came in, Rachel had done something. So she was like in a timeout in her crib and I was laying sort of below the crib with my little hand. I mean, it's like the cutest thing ever. My little hand up there and we were holding hands, uh, probably, you know, chatting or laughing about or commiserating about the punishment that was being doled out. But yeah, we pulled on the heartstrings of my mom a lot, I think. Your brother Brian was five years older than you and first introduced you to soccer. And from the time you could first walk, you and Rachel would chase soccer balls around the big oak tree in your backyard. And I read that whenever he did a trick with a soccer ball, all you needed was to watch him once to have it down. Was it just soccer you had a natural ability for or were you just athletically gifted overall? 
I think athletically gifted overall, both Rachel and I, we played, you know, every sport and we played against each other too. I think that was one of the things in all the sports, but at a very young age and having older siblings being around his older friends, obviously we're the youngest. So even my other siblings, we were always sort of forced to kind of level up. But I think even from a young age, we were, you know, when we were five and six, it was very clear running faster and more aggressive and more skilled in all of those ways. So my parents were like, well, we have something on our hands. We don't really, we don't really know what it is. And we're from a pretty small town, not really a, you know, preeminent sports town or anything. So I think we stood out quite a lot. When you were five, you announced you wanted to cut your hair short like your brother Brian's and wear only boys' clothes from then on. And though you loved your twin, your brother was everything you wanted to be. Funny, clever, cheerful, popular, outgoing, and good at all sports. And you said your mother took it completely in stride. Was she always that accepting of the directions that you were taking and the ways in which you wanted to express yourself? I think mostly, I think when we came out in college, both my sister and I came out in college, that was a little bit harder. I think for all parents, you kind of have a a, a dream or a, a sort of vision of what you think your kids' lives are going to be or you, what you want for them. You want them to be happy. And, you know, I think as a parent, you want everything to be as frictionless as possible. And obviously that's not possible in the world. And the more dynamic you get as a person, <laughs> the more friction <laughs> seems to come. But yeah, it, it was interesting from such a young age. I think she was protective of me as well, you know, because I was called a boy all the time. I didn't really care. And I was kind of like, this is great because then it's like, I'm more like my brother and that felt more natural. I don't think it was like even really totally conscious for her of like, oh, Megan's expressing her gender in a different way. I don't think she was thinking about that. We didn't have that kind of language at all back then. But I think it was just like, whatever, she's fine. Like she's playing sports, she's doing her thing. She has a a bowl cut that's, you know, I'll put a barrette in it sometimes. But I think she just wasn't really up for the fight. I think us being the youngest of so many kids as well, she's probably just tired and she's like, whatever, like (laughs) who cares? Like it doesn't really matter. The more you try to, you know, she probably learned at that point, the more you try to control your kids, the more they're going to do whatever you're trying to control them against. So I think she just realized that that's kind of just who I was and she didn't really find anything wrong with that. And um, I think both for my, for my sister and myself just kind of allowed us to, to be who we were. In order to express yourself in the way that you feel most sort of authentic And also to sort of throw yourself into physical activity really does require a lot of confidence and a certain sense of being able to rely on yourself. Um, For example, I'm I'm just not physically talented at all. Um, And so I tend to be really afraid of things and I hold myself back from any kind of asserting of myself physically. Did you ever experience any fear sort of moving through life through sports? Not a lot of fear. Again, I think having the experience of being a twin and us always being together and, you know, playing one-on-one, literally everything, made up games, all the sports, sports that require 20 people. Somehow we distilled it down to a one (laughs) one one-on-one situation with everything. And then having older siblings as well, I think that was always a place where I felt the safest. And I think as I got older, that was always a place that felt more safe. I think in my high school years, the only kind of, I don't know if it's fear or insecurity would be like when we started playing with bigger clubs or bigger tournaments, or we played on like a couple of essentially what are like all state teams or something like that, where I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, these people are so good. And I was a little bit of a late bloomer even just like physically. And then I was also just never the best in my own household either with Rachel. She was, you know, really until my junior year, junior year in high school, neither of us were really like so much better than the other, but I felt like I was always just like a little bit behind her. So maybe just a little insecurity around like going to the big city and playing with, you know, players that played on the biggest clubs that I had heard about or the best teams or whatever just kind of like finding my feet a little bit. But I think 
sports mostly was always a place where nothing else that I was feeling uncomfortable. You didn't really have to, I, I sort of had already figured it out. I was like, okay, I can exist here and feel really confident and safe. And I think that's where a lot of my general confidence came from was having that ability to really express myself and being sort of allowed to express myself too. I think coming from a smaller town and playing on not like the preeminent club teams that are so focused on winning. And I think at, at a young age in sports, sort of like youth sports, pretty much if you're like, you know, if you hit puberty quicker or you're faster, or you're stronger, like you're going to be more dominant. And I think that's what a lot of the club teams like focus on or that what a lot of the youth teams focus on instead of like skill and understanding of the game. And so I just didn't really have that. And our team wasn't that. And so all my coaches were like, okay, we see that you have something different, something special. We're going to like cultivate that. So I feel like I was rewarded for things in the environment that I was in that maybe in a different environment I wouldn't have been or would have been overlooked or stifled in different ways. Since there wasn't a girls team available in your neighborhood, when you were six years old, you and Rachel were invited to play with the under eight boys team. Um, then your dad started an all-girls team. Is that right? Mm-hmm. He did. Yeah, it was basically just a mashing up of all the best athletes in the town that we could find. We all played almost every sport. It was basketball or softball, track. Pretty much all of us did all of the sports all the time. We're like, let's just put this together and kind of see how it goes. And you said you were highly emotional at that time with really no idea how to handle your emotions. How did you end up being able to do that as you move through elementary school? Oh, gosh. Um, I did eventually grow out of my tantrums, um, I think, before (laughs) elementary school. So that was good. Um, I think probably having the balance of being a twin, too. Um, You're just sort of always having to balance with someone else. I think sports was a really big outlet for a lot of that, just like self-expression. And I think that was one thing that meant a lot to me. And I think still means a lot to me is my ability and the sort of like need internally to express myself and who I am and, you know, the things that I care about. So I think sports was a really big outlet for that. But I think it was probably much later until I really learned how to, (laughs) you know, express my emotions or even be able to name them and, Yeah, I think just over time, becoming a little bit more mature. But yeah, I have some epic tantrums from my childhood. By junior high, you said you you were the mob barker to your sister's sweet muffin. Yeah, I do. So so what does that mean? You can see it on the screen. Oh, you do? Oh, my Um, God. Yeah. Yes. You know, my mom was actually really upset. My my dad's dad, my grandfather, Jack, um, gave me that nickname, um, and it, I think Ma Barker was like a famous like mob boss serial killer. So I don't think it was really a, a compliment at the time at all. My mom was so mad at him for that. But I think it's, you know, come come full circle. I'm not um, a mob boss or, you know, killing multiple people. But, you know, she probably had to do things different. She probably had to have a bit of ingenuity and, you know, a toughness and um, obviously bucking against the the status quo and just being a little bit unruly. I think that's, you know, part of what my personality was as a kid is just kind of being a little bit of a showman and a little bit unruly. And then of course, if I would get upset or embarrassed, then that's when like the tantrums would come. And, uh, my sister was much, um, quieter and sort of sweeter on the surface than I was. As you continue to play soccer, you've said that your other sister, your older sister, Jenny, predicted that you were going to get a gold medal one day. But as I was reading your memoir, I didn't get the sense that either of your parents were like as motivated as someone, say, Serena Williams' dad, in terms of motivating their children to become elite athletes. Did you feel like your family had a real sense that you had what it took to become a gold medalist? I think my parents had a real sense kind of what we, when we got into high school that we could get college paid for, that we could like go on a full ride through soccer. So I think that was more so the like primary motivation. I mean, obviously we loved it and we were into it and they were like, okay, you guys are into it. We're into it, but also this is like a lot of work and a lot of money. And so, you know, we had kind of those frank conversations, like if you guys aren't, really into this, 
like, we're not going to force you to do it. And we're also not going to spend all this time and money doing all of this. If, if you aren't the drivers of this and we, you know, we definitely were, I mean, of course we complained at some points cause it was a lot. I mean, we got up early most weekends and drove really far and missed a lot. And it was a huge commitment kind of on everyone's part. But I think especially early on in high school, it was more like, okay, we're going to really dig into the soccer and they have an opportunity to get their education paid for once recruiting opened up, I mean, to some of the best colleges in the country. So I think that was a big motivator. And I think they kind of knew that there was like another level of talent there, but we didn't really have a ton of the comparison because we just were some from such a small area. Our club team was kind of a ragtag bunch of misfits put all together so it wasn't really until later. I think I, you know, I think it was late in my junior year was my first youth national team invitation to play with them. But it's it's always just like, I mean, who knows? You know, from that team, there's like two players that, you know, made it as as far as we did. You know, I think for female athletes too, it, it just so much was unknown. I mean, we obviously had the World Cup, such a preeminent moment in women's sports in 1999. So we were 14, I think, at the time. But like you weren't seeing everything on TV all the time, like it is now, we weren't seeing the coverage, we weren't having those, so many of those moments have been created either during my career or just before. So it was probably a little bit of like, couldn't see it, didn't even know that it existed, but maybe something like that was, was possible. When I interviewed Chrissy Everett, she said that despite her father being a tennis coach, all of the children in her family were being trained really just to get full ride scholarships. Like they weren't <laughs> planning on, I mean, they, they certainly hoped that it was something that could be possible, but the real goal was we're not going to pay for college. Yeah. I think that was the focus for my parents too, because they were, they couldn't afford to send us to the types of colleges that we were being recruited by or send us to a four year. We would have maybe gone to junior college or you know, take it out student loans or something. So that was, I think, something that was very motivating for them of like, we want to get, the, you know, use this talent skill that they have to get them, you know, the best education so they can have, you know, whatever kind of life they want to have. You mentioned that you woke up early and every weekend morning, I know that you, your weekend mornings really began at 4 a.m. when your parents, yeah. <laughs> your sister, you'd all pile into the family minivan for a long drive to Sacramento for soccer practice for an 8 a.m. game. And you've said that while you both had natural ability with instinctive hand-eye coordination and physical fearlessness, your ferocity also had a lot to do with the fact that you played against each other all the time. How did that influence your competitiveness? You know, people always ask if we're competitive. And I think the undertone of what they always are asking is like, did you guys fight a lot? Were you competitive? Or, you know, so almost like in the jealousy strain against each other. And we didn't really have that aspect, but we fought to the death on everything because it was just the two of us. And we loved playing sports. We loved being active. We loved being outside. I think we learn to like battle in this way and be competitive and get the most out of ourselves because that was going to be the only way that you were going to be, you know, that's going to be the only way that I could beat Rachel, you know, who for such long stretches beat me at everything because she was better and stronger and she hit puberty a little bit earlier. And so she was physically more dominant. And so it was always this thing like you got to get the best out of yourself to even just beat this person. So I think as that translated to sports, we also knew, you know, team sports, we also knew each other's level and level of commitment and level of trying and, and working and, you know, the sort of work ethic. So if ever we didn't feel like the other person was, was giving their all, we, we sort of got into it with each other. And I think that kind of, you know, helped set the standard for the team as well, sort of unknowingly. I mean, for us, it's just normal to like bicker like that. And it was funny because I usually played forward and she played defense opposite ends of the field. And we'd have these kind of like, you know, epic screaming matches or, uh, but then it was kind of, you know, just sort of over when the game was over. And ultimately we just wanted to win and wanted each other to be successful. But I think there's just a level of honesty that we still have to this day. It's like, no one can really talk to her the way that I talk to her and vice versa, both good and bad. It's just a little bit more honest. And I think just as a twin, there's just a level of understanding and intimacy that you have with someone that just doesn't really exist anywhere 
in any other relationship that you have. By 2003, you and Rachel accepted full scholarships to attend the University of Portland, but shortly thereafter, you received a call from a coach on the U.S. women's national team, offering you a spot to play in the FIFA Under-19 Women's World Championship in Thailand later that year. And you said the experience the year before on the women's national team felt very much like a one-off, but now a new pattern was emerging You'd been chosen as one of the 11 best players in the country. What did that feel like? I mean, kind of surreal. I I think for a long time, I kind of had imposter syndrome. Like I didn't really, like I knew that I was good, but then, you know, I wasn't from the best team or from the best club or, you know, never won the best tournaments, never, never was really the best. Um, And so I think it took me a little while to like settle in to, you know, what it even meant to be on that team. Um, even just like the training environments and the training habits, um, and to just feel more, more comfortable. But I think that experience kind of gave that to me. The coach was amazing. Um, and I feel like really valued, um, what I brought to the game, which I feel like is different. Um, I still feel like that very different. So I, I feel like it was like, strange a little bit and it was um weird to be away from Rachel as well and weird not to be on the same team but I think it helped me grow as well sort of forced me to grow and kind of put me in this different environment that really challenged me because I was uncomfortable and I didn't know everyone and you know a lot of other players sort of knew each other and I was like this weird kid from like Redding, California. They're like, where? I'm like, I know. I don't really know. <laughs> it's, it's not LA and it's not San Francisco, but it is California. I, I assure you that. I think it was just one of those, like, while it was very uncomfortable and challenged me a lot, it was sort of one of those um, pivotal points in my life where I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I can do this and, you know, be in this level of competition, not just, you know, with the U.S. players, but on a global stage as well. You said that you knew that the way you played was different. How so? Um, I've just never, well, I've never been the fastest or the strongest or the fittest. I've never really had like a physical imposing power or anyone. I'm not going to really just like run past anyone. So I think there's like a, a lack of physical flash that immediately it's like, okay, well then what are you doing? Um, I think my game is much more predicated on, not just understanding where I am in space, but where my teammates are. It's like, I might not be scoring the goals or making the assists, but you know, I might make the pass that makes the pass or, you know, finding those little areas that are creative. I think I play a little bit off pace or unexpected, just kind of seeing things that are maybe developing, you know, I see it before anybody else sees it. So the sort of vision and creativity. And I think for me, it's always about like, who's around me and everyone else. I've never been that kind of individual player because I I can't really be, I'm not like an exceptional dribbler or super fast where I can get around people or talented in that way. So it's always been like, who's around me and how can we create an advantage or create an overload or put the other people at a disadvantage? I think that's what I'm always looking for there. You know, teams are always going to, or players are always going to try to take away the thing that you're best at or take away something. So I'm always thinking like, what are you trying to take away? You're going to have to put more into one area than another. So I'm going to try to exploit that other area and just try to use my brain a little bit more, my understanding of space to basically get the ball in. You're considered one of the the greatest soccer players to have played the game. You have played with some of the greatest soccer players to play the game. Your fiance is one of the greatest basketball players to play the game. From your perspective, do you have to think that you're the best in order to be the best? Oh, good question. Um, I never look at it like that. I don't think I'm the best. I definitely think that there's other players that are better than me. Um, I'm certainly better at certain things than maybe anyone um, or other players, but I'm always thinking all I can be is me. So I, I just like, I, I think playing on a team for so long, especially a, a team as successful as the US Women's national team, where like you're literally playing with the best players in the world all of the time. I think the comparison 
game is very dangerous <laughs> because you're just never going to be able to be someone else. So it's always like, how can I bring what I can bring? Cause I know nobody else can bring that. I do think you need to have a level of confidence and even aspirational confidence of like, when I go out there, I don't, I don't necessarily think like, Oh, I'm, I'm the best, but I think when I'm at my best, then I feel confident against anyone or feel like no one can beat me or feel like I'm going to be able to impose myself on the game. There's some people who have a, a legitimate argument that they are the best ever. And I think that you should be honest and confident about your assessment. Sometimes athletes want to do the whole, like, I don't know. It's kind of like fake humility. And I'm not really into that. I'm like, if you're the best, you're the best. Like I think Sue's got a legitimate argument that she's the best point guard of all time. And she should, she should say that and not feel, you know, shy about that. Or someone like Diana or Maya or, you know, LeBron James or Messi. I think Messi's got a legitimate argument. He's the best male soccer player of all time. But I actually legitimately don't think I am. I think I'm very good and, you know, have my, my place among the very best, but I sort of look at it like I just want to be my best and always bring, you know, what I know that nobody else has that I have to try to influence the game that way. When you first joined the United States women's national team, you said that if anything could bring you down to size, it was walking into the national team locker room as the youngest and least experienced player. How do you get over being intimidated? I think a little bit of what I was just saying of having the appropriate level of, you know, respect and admiration for all the greats that you're playing with. I mean, obviously when I first came into the team, Christine Lilly was still there. Obviously Abby was playing Mia and Julie and Brandy had just retired. Kate Markgraf was still playing. So like, I'm clearly not at their level at this point, but I think also being like, well, I have something different. I have something that is also special. And so trying to focus on the areas of my game that are special and that could bring something different, always learning, always trying to get better, but understanding that I could never be those players. And so being intimidated or feeling less confident because I'm not those players didn't seem that useful. And it took a little bit of time because oftentimes you're being, you are being compared to those players. It's, you know, certain players make a roster and other players don't, or some players start and other players don't. But I feel like even the times when I hadn't been starting, it was more just like, how can I continue? The only thing that's going to get me on the field is me playing my game. It's not going to be replicating someone else's game better than they can actually do it. So just trying to keep that in mind that everybody brings something special. And the thing that makes teams special, I feel like, is when everyone gets to be their unique individual self with the team in mind. And that's, I think, when you get the best out of everyone and then collectively as a team, I think that's when you get something really special. In October 2006, almost a year to the day before the 2007 FIFA World Cup was scheduled to take place, you tore your ACL. And you did your best to recover but came back too soon and tore it again. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in you missing both the World Cup and the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Did you worry that your soccer career was over at that point? Maybe a little bit. My mom definitely worried. She even said that. I was like, that's not the kind of energy that I need, mom. I mean, we need <laughs> right. full-blown, we need unfetted confidence right now. Right. Um, Lie to me I, if you have to. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I don't need your anxiety coming out here. I never really felt like that. I mean, even after the second ACL tear, which happened in quick succession after the first one, I never really felt that. I never got that sense from my physical body either. I know that I, I had two knee injuries in a row, but it wasn't like I had, you know, crazy cartilage damage or arthritis or anything. I never got that sense, you know, medically from the doctor or from the sort of larger team around. And then I think probably just some young blind confidence and arrogance and dreamer in me. Um, it just never felt like it was over. It just felt like I needed to take a little time and make sure that I, I got it right. I mean, certainly after the first one, I think I, you know, walked myself into a giant dose of humility because I was like, Oh, I'm going to come back so quick. And I'm awesome. Cause I'm 21 and you know, I can do everything that backfired immediately, <laughs> almost immediately. <laughs> so I think that kind of actually I'm, I'm thankful for that because I feel like it's set me up for the rest of my career and just understanding your body, understanding injuries, understanding when to push and when not to push and ultimately like your body's going to tell you 
the answers. Like you can't really force anything and you need to sort of treat your body with that respect as well. I think oftentimes you just want to push, 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 but that's not really how um, your physical body works. I want to read a paragraph from your memoir. You talked a little bit about sort of being able to, I don't want to say magically, but there's a sense that you have about where people are on the field. And in the World Cup, in 2011 in Germany, you had one of the greatest plays of your career. And I'd like to read a paragraph from your memoir when you're down two to one to Brazil, because I think it really does capture some of the the way in which you approach playing. You cool with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the 122nd minute, I was thinking, we're fucked. But I can hold two thoughts in my head at one time. And while thinking, we're fucked because we're in the dying minutes of the game. The ball is way down on our end and the Brazilians are trying to run down the clock with their antics. I'm also seeing Allie Krieger dribbling up the sideline, passing the ball to the middle to Carly and then Carly dribbling for what seems like an eternity. And I'm like, just fucking pass the ball to me because I'm open and I'm coming up on the left. And she dribbles across the field, finally plays it. I take one touch. I don't even really look up, but I'm like, bitch, you'd better be there. Somebody has to be there. And it was literally a Hail Mary pass. This was our last chance. The ref should have already blown the whistle. And I just bombed it up the field where the ball found Abby, who headed it in. Oh my God, she screamed. Oh my God. Best cross of your life. It was an epic sports moment, extremely dramatic. I imagine people back home watching, sitting in bars, jumping up to celebrate. When the whistle blew, we were tied 2-2, and the game went to a penalty shootout, which we won 5-3. That clip of my cross to Abby and her stupendous header into the goal went what we didn't yet know to call viral. One of the great moments in sports history brought to you by Design Matters. Um, <laughs> is is there a way to describe what that felt like? You kicked a ball not knowing where you were kicking it, but knowing full well, I think, where it was going. Talk about how that felt. Oh, gosh. It was the craziest. It was just the craziest moment. I think there was so much pressure and just so much going through my head. I mean, it's like, you have the larger sort of context of this would be, I think, the earliest exit of any team in U.S. history going out in the quarterfinals. So that's obviously terrible. You never want to be that team. I'm like, oh, my God, this is nuts. It's already like way into overtime of, you know, we've already gone into overtime. The game was crazy, too. We like got a red card early in the game. Um, so we were playing down. It's gone into extra time. I think in the absence of some of the time wasting from Brazil, the game would have already been called, but I think the ref was feeling like that wasn't fair, which I'm not even sure refs are like supposed to do, but she she did. Um, It felt like an eternity. I think it was like oftentimes in those moments, I mean, the the extra time as we've seen in this, you know, recent men's world cup, it's, it's very just like arbitrary and like, we don't really know, but they usually give, momentum, the advantage. So we were sort of coming up the field. Everything felt like an eternity. I mean, Abby and I had such a great on-field connection. Also, I just felt, I mean, she was so dominant in the air and had such amazing timing and just was always there. Um, And I felt like we just kind of had that connection. And I don't even know, I'm just going to, I was far away too. So it was like, I just have to boot this far and give someone a chance. Obviously it was Abby in there, you know, and as the best goal scorer of all time, you know, in U S history and just knowing how dominant she was, it was just like, just get something in there. I mean, honestly, it was like, I thought we were probably going to lose. Like you're going to try obviously and do your best to you know, have this like crazy moment happen, this hail Mary, but, um, it's just that it's just a hail Mary. It's just a, a hope and a prayer. And, I can't really explain what it felt like in the moment, just seeing it go out. I feel like I get emotional now. It's just like, it's, it was just so crazy. I still think to this day, it's one of the greatest single sports moments in history. It just, all the drama, it had everything. It was just like a really difficult header from Abby as well. 
It wasn't just like everyone fell over and she had this free header and just like pure elation, a little bit of like relief as well. I think there's like a relief that happens because we always have so much pressure. The expectation is always to win and do all the things. So there's some relief, but it was like just this perfect sports moment that you kind of dream about or that you, you know, a buzzer beater type situation. It was just honestly just like unbelievable. And I think the energy in the arena and the stadium that day was sort of interesting. I think, again, the antics of Brazil kind of turned the tide against them. And so it just was the swell and, you know, that moment where you get to really like pop your top off. And I feel like everyone just like let, let the cannons go. And it was just, yeah, an, an incredible moment that honestly changed the course of women's soccer history forever, I think, globally. In the time after the post-World Cup media frenzy, you, and in the lead-up to the London 2012 Olympics, you decided it was time to come out, and you scheduled an interview with Out Magazine. What made you decide that that particular moment between the World Cup and the Olympics, it was the right time? You know, it just started to feel awkward that I wasn't out. That started to feel very uncomfortable for me because I was out in my normal life. And I think when I when I started on the national team, we just weren't really that popular. If I was coming on the national team now, I'd probably already be out. The team's so big. There's just so much media around the team and social media and everything. We didn't have any of that. So it's kind of like you didn't really live two different, two separate lives. It wasn't really like a public and a private because, I mean, in a way there was. Obviously, we played a public sport, but it just wasn't that popular. It wasn't like it is now. But it did start to feel, I mean, definitely after the World Cup, I remember um, on the plane ride home sitting with one of my best friends, Lori Lindsay, and then my agent, Dan, was close next to us on the plane. It was just kind of like, why am I not? This just seems weird. This is getting a little bit awkward. I think there was a couple times where maybe I used a more bland pronoun or something or, you know, just sort of like omitted. And I was like, this feels weird. This isn't. And I was like very gay and Visually, I think I looked very gay, whatever that means. But I think at the time, it was like, oh, this person is clearly gay. And it was also during that time, I think Prop 8 in California was like 2008 or 9. So that was happening. That was progressing through the courts, uh, obviously, you know, up until 2015, which I think that was the Supreme Court decision. So it just was sort of in that time. I don't think I was really thinking explicitly like this at the time. But looking back and then just knowing myself now, I think I definitely do try to leverage the biggest moments for the things that I find to be very important or worth leveraging. I, I sort of take the opposite approach of most athletes with like in the biggest moments, let's try to like keep everything calm and you know not bring more. But I sort of like to do the opposite. And I think there was an activist piece to it. I didn't have the stereotypical like struggle internally or with my family. I didn't have that story. I thought that my story would be important. And I think also because I hadn't personally struggled, it just felt more like a responsibility. Like this wouldn't be a huge undertaking for me. Um, I thought it would be a really positive thing for myself and for other people. And it's been extremely positive. I mean, I think still to this day, people come up to me and reference that moment or just reference being out the way that I have is something really important to their life. So I think it just kind of made sense. And it really kind of came down to this feels awkward to not be out. It feels like more work to not be out than just to be who I am authentically. One of the things that I was going to ask you was looking at the sort of history of your major accomplishments on the field and then your sort of major political statements. They seem very close in, in the timeline because you, you and the team won the gold uh, at the Olympics in 2012. You went on to win the 2015 FIFA Women's World Cup. And not content with resting on those achievements in 2016, you knelt during the national anthem at an international match in solidarity with NFL player Colin Kaepernick. And you said that kneeling felt more like an imperative and a perfectly logical response to what felt like a state of emergency than a choice. And I'm wondering in, in what way did that feel like a state of emergency to you at that moment in time? I just think where we were at as a country those last, you know, maybe 
three, four years before 2016, the murder of Trayvon Martin, you know, NBA players wearing hoodies and you started to see a little bit more public political activism, Michael Brown and Ferguson, 2014, um, you know, obviously huge protests on the ground in Ferguson, but it was more of a national story in every publication, in all the newspapers. It was difficult to avoid. And obviously if you, when you don't avoid it and, you know, read what's happening and read not just about the specific murders of these young black men, but just historically you start to get into the data and police brutality. The I mean, just the history of our country, it's obviously undeniable, you know, leading into 2016, the WNBA players had started to protest. Minnesota Lynx were the first team. I believe there was a murder in Minnesota that they were protesting. They wore shirts. They had the police, you know, walk out on them. Their security police walk out on them in the building. You know, I think there was like four or five really high profile murders that summer. And then, you know, sort of culminating in America's biggest sport, which is football. Um, with one of their biggest players in the most important position, Colin Kaepernick as a quarterback, speaking out. And I, I mean, I just still remember so vividly his interview in front of his locker, which I feel like you could you could take and put in any time period at any time. And it, I mean, it still resonates perfectly today. And I just remember watching that and just thinking, having the experience of coming out and asking people to, I don't need you to be gay. I just need you to understand that I'm gay and that I deserve my rights. So the idea of kind of allyship and understanding that I am asking people to do the same thing for me that I felt was necessary of me or that could help. And so it just seemed like a, a no brainer. It felt like something that was about to sweep through all of sports. It felt like one of those moments that massive change uh, should happen and could happen. And it just felt, I think like a, a personal moment of like, I just couldn't really reconcile not doing anything. I mean, how could I, you know, understand what was happening and, you know, seeing what had happened again, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and all these murders, the three, four years prior, and then culminating in this moment where Colin actually gave us really for the first time, a mechanism to protest against the systemic police brutality and white supremacy that really our country was founded on. So it gave us a real clear mechanism with the kneeling on something that you could do and then sort of talking points or a way that you could verbally support kind of on top of that. And I mean, I still believe to this day, if one white quarterback would have knelt with Colin um, or even just one white, you know, high profile NFL player would have done that. I mean, I think we would have much more sweeping change, but no one did. <laughs> I think Eric Reed was really, you know, one of the only other ones consistently. There was a few other black players, but very few, if any white players that did that. Very few, if any white players in almost all other sports that did that. And in sports, I think the different sports leagues are different. I think the NBA didn't have a lot of kneeling, but it's very clear what the NBA stands for and what those players are, are about and, and, you know, what they'll protest for. And still to this day, it feels like a complete no brainer to me. I would do it all over again in the exact same way that I did it. Um, obviously I didn't know everything going in. I think I was very naive in a lot of ways, but I think very quickly I learned that the sort of the outrage was, was the game that was being played by white America and by white supremacy and by you know, stakeholders, whether it be U.S. soccer and the management at U.S. soccer or the government or media, whether it's the ESPNs or the Foxes of the world or CNNs or, you know, MSNBCs is, is sort of, and I think the the kind of online outrage also, I was like, oh, very quick. I was like, oh, okay, that's the, that's the whole game. We're not talking about police brutality because we don't want to talk about this massive problem in our country. We want to talk about whatever, military or the flag or lack of patriotism, whatever that means. Well, you were really punished shortly after you knelt. The U.S. soccer team released 
Uh, the U- U.S. soccer released a statement saying it expected players to stand for the anthem. Your coach told you she wasn't starting you in a game with Atlanta. A few weeks later, she told you not to dress for two national team games, guaranteeing you wouldn't set foot on the field. And with the exception of a training camp you attended in November, you wouldn't be invited to train with the team again that winter or the following spring. And then in early 2017, the U.S. Soccer Federation formally banned players from kneeling during the anthem. How did you manage through this time not playing and being punished in such a public and vindictive way? Yeah, it was difficult. (laughs) It was very difficult. I mean, I have an amazing group of people around me from my family who didn't always share my views, certainly, but always, you know, supported me. Obviously, my partner, Sue, Dan, my agent, Jessica, the woman that I work with, it took a team of people close to me and then also just keeping myself educated. I mean, I think ultimately I knew that I was doing the right thing. So I I just, I never felt like, oh, fuck, I made a mistake and now I can't really take it back. I always felt like U.S. soccer looked horrible from the second they put out that statement. And they did. They looked absolutely terrible. And every move they made from then on, they looked terrible and continued to look terrible until, again, a hand was forced in 2020 with some apology that also looked pretty terrible. And people were like, really? This Is this you? Um, but I think for me personally, Sue's calm head kept me um, from firing off a number of irrational sort of wild emails that I probably would have regretted. I never really got into like the Twitter outrage that again, I think I learned very early on, like, okay, that's the, that's the point of all of this is just to incite outrage and not really talk about what we're talking about. And I think there was the sort of reality that my season was coming up for the NWSL, the league that we play in. So by kind of like March and April, I would be back playing. And I always just felt like if I just get back to a level that I know that I can, then that will be a different conversation than what we're in now. Because also simultaneously what was happening, I had come off um, an ACL injury the year before. And I, you know, I made the Olympic roster and I played in the Olympics, but I really was not really my full self. And so that was part of the fake reason really, or the reason given was that your performance isn't you know, such the level that we need on the national team. I'm like, well, yeah, no shit. I just got back like two minutes ago. And like, yeah, I need, I need a place to play in order for my performance to be where you need it to be. I agree. My performance is not there. So it's just like the whole mechanism for, you know, being able to play and get minutes was taken away. So while that was really frustrating, I think also I, I did know that the season was coming up. I was fully supported by my club team and fully supported by my coach at the time. Laura Harvey and Bill Predmore, who was the, uh, and Teresa Predmore, the owner of our club here in Seattle at the time, I felt fully supported there. So it was just like, I just need to get back on the field to do what I'm doing and to play my sport because I feel like it'll, it'll be undeniable then. And then what are you going to do? And as the saying goes, they fucked around and found out. By 2019, you helped the U.S. win the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup again. But at the time, we were approaching an election year. The news was dominated by stories of Black Americans dying in police custody. You stated publicly that if you won the World Cup, you would not visit the White House because of Trump's policies and his racism. And Trump uh, responded on Twitter, speaking of Twitter, and said, I'm a big fan of the U.S. team and women's soccer, but Megan should first win before she speaks. Finish the job. Were you surprised that he responded and called you out in the way that he did? I mean, yes, because, like, you're the president of the United States. You should be working on, like, other stuff in the country and, like, policy and what your actual job is as opposed to responding to an athlete. But then again, no, because any, you know, it, whether it was Hillary or um, AOC or the squad or really just any woman who had the audacity to go against him, he sort of put his sights on. So in a way, no, he always tries to insert himself into whatever 
the sort of cultural moment is at the time. I'm sure he felt left out of the World Cup because it was such an amazing moment, as it always is. And obviously, I mean, the man loves an American flag. So it's like he, he didn't want to miss out on this incredible moment of patriotism. So I was surprised because I was like, this is just absurd. I, I never want to not be shocked and surprised by that level of absurdity from that high of an office in the country. But at the same time, it was very much par for the course. I thought it was obviously extremely tacky and just unacceptable and very unpatriotic to sort of heap that pressure onto an individual player, but onto a team at a moment where they're trying to do something really special and trying to achieve a dream that they've worked so hard for. He obviously didn't know uh, <laughs> which team he was messing with because we thrive under pressure and it's yes. sort of like the more pressure, the better. And I think just for me personally, I never felt unsafe. I never felt any of those things. And, it, you know, from, you know, a physical or emotional online perspective at all. So I think the team was able to, then myself was able to take it on as more of like a ridiculous joke, like one more thing that this crazy thing is happening. And thanks for more eyeballs because we, you know, undoubtedly, I think it raised the profile of the entire team and what we were doing and, you know, our performances on the field sort of showed that. So it was absurd in all ways. But again, I feel like those big moments I, I really do enjoy and um, all the antics around. I mean, we sued our federation, you know, two months before going to the World Cup anyway. So we were already locked in as a team and sort of prepared for anything. But yeah, that was a little, <laughs> that, was a, that was a funny bust moment when everybody realized that that happened. After winning the world title, you posted, the group is strong, resilient. We have pink hair and purple hair, tattoos and dreadlocks. We have white girls, black girls, and what's in between. We have straight girls and gay girls. And I kind of love that in this particular case, history is written by the victors. Mm, very much so. Yeah, very much so. You and your teammates fought for years for pay parity with the men's team. And this seemed like a no-brainer as the winning women's team was getting paid less than the losing men's team. And this year, back in May, at long last, you've achieved that goal. I know that the... The case said for now, this was going to be, there will be pay equity. Do you feel like that will be the way it is for the future? Yeah, I, I think that that's the, the sort of baseline now. I think something we always want to keep in mind is equality or equity doesn't always have to mean the exact same. And I think oftentimes with men's and women's sports or with women's sports, it's like this trap we get into of, comparing ourselves to the men. And if we could just do all the same things, then we'll be all the same kinds of successful, which will never happen. I think as any marginalized person knows, uh, you could, you know, that's the sort of twice as good. You can do everything the same and they're still not going to let you in. So right. I think always keeping in mind what's different about our game, what different needs do we have that maybe the men's team doesn't have. It's more so about the equal investment, the equal care, really. I think so much, I mean, maybe this is a, a soft topic, but the actual care that each individual in the federation and at the board level and at the executive level has for the team matters. I mean, for so long, we could just tell, like, they don't care. They don't really want to be here. You know, even like when they would come to the final, it just felt like begrudging. Whereas like if the men, you know, did well in a friendly, it was like, the world was made of gold. And I think that's really important. I think that sends a signal to the players and sends a signal to, you know, the staff under the management and um, everybody else working in the Federation where it's branding and marketing. So I think, you know, the level investment, the level in care, the pots of money available to each team to be able to decide how they want that distributed, what works best, how we want to invest that as a staff or a coaching staff or, you know, a support staff, I think is really important. So I think this agreement and settlement really, you know, this lawsuit is really sort of the the baseline of where we can go. And I think from here, I mean, the sky's the limit, obviously our league, um, we're entering into our, I think, 11th year in the NWSL. That's a huge area that needs to grow um, as soccer continues to grow massively in the world and in our country, obviously leading into 2026, which will be a home men's world cup, which will 
undoubtedly raised the profile of soccer across the board from youth soccer to the MLS to the NWSL, the national teams alike. I think this is just a good starting point moving forward to think how can we grow both teams in the way that is uniquely situated to them and not just always saying, okay, well, the men stayed at this Hilton, so we have to stay at that hill. That might not work for us. Maybe they like to be more secluded or like to be more in the city and vice versa for us. I think it's just more about understanding each team deserves the same opportunity and investment and care as each other, and then we can move on from there. I just have a few more questions for you today. Um, you're engaged to Sue Bird. Congratulations. Thank you. Sue is for our non-sports oriented listeners, is a professional athlete with the Women's Basketball Association, winner of four Olympic gold medals of her own. You recently co-founded a production company that centers stories of revolutionaries who move culture forward. You've named the company A Touch More, which is an extension of the name of your podcast. Is there a backstory to the name, A Touch More? There, there is. It's, a, it's actually a, um, a, it's a pandemic creation. Early in the pandemic, we decided to do an Instagram live as ever, as you know most people did. Um, but it was just kind of a fun, light show. It was obviously just the two of us with you know Instagram live right in front of you. Sue was the producer on the show, so we had all kinds of games and we bring guests on, and we had a blast. But there's one point during this must have been a few months into the pandemic where <laughs> Sue had asked it, basically if she had like gained weight or something like through, you know, through the pandemic. And it's like, of course, like we're just sitting in the house. We're not working out. We're not doing anything. So I think I had said like, I mean, maybe like a touch more, but like, I don't, I mean, no, <laughs> not really. And she was like, all I heard was a touch more. It's <laughs> like, okay. So we called our show a touch more, uh, which is just a little, a little nod to also us opening ourselves up in a way that we hadn't. I mean, it was, it was um, admittedly a little bit alcohol fueled during the early part of the pandemic and um, <laughs> a little looser than we are, uh, at least than we have been in uh, normal interviews. Um, so it was kind of uh, a touch more than you than you normally get from us. People ask us to recreate that all the time. I was like, you guys, I can't be drunk like three days a week doing a podcast. <laughs> this is not this is not going to work. So maybe some sort of iteration. Maybe it'll be a when we're both into retirement. But other than that, I think we'll yeah probably leave a touch more just for the title. You debuted a four-part audio documentary for 30 for 30 titled Pink Card, which chronicles women in Iran and their fight for the right to watch soccer. What other kinds of stories are you hoping to tell? A lot of stories like that of what it takes to even be successful as a woman just in general at times, but certainly as a female athlete, we always have to just move a little bit differently. They're like, you're really good. And so then you can just go and play professionally is never the whole story. We saw that obviously with Brittany Griner being detained, wrongfully detained overseas and, you know, thank God being brought home. We see that with other players playing overseas. We see that with players starting their own businesses during their careers. So really interested in stories that just go beyond what sports are and sort of go into a little bit more about what we have to do to even be successful and what makes us successful um, certainly in marginalized communities, the same thing doesn't even have to specifically be in sports, but the myriad of different inspirational, um, and creative and frankly, genius ways that marginalized people have to move just in order to be successful, getting more eyes on those stories and starting to sort of broaden the cultural understanding, I guess, of what, um, it means to move in the world when you don't look a certain way. You're in your final years of playing professional soccer. You initially thought about retiring, but have stated you feel a renewed joy and passion for the game, which is wonderful news, with an eye toward the 2023 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. What do you want your relationship to the sport to be moving forward? I do feel like my relationship has changed a lot. Um, I think for so long it was just fighting, 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 fighting. Uh, both on the field and off, um, whether that was gay rights or pay equity or the fight with our federation or racial equality, so many things that this team fights for. Sometimes it's hard to change that mindset 
Um, you're used to kind of having your gloves up all the time. So I think I'm approaching this next year, just trying to enjoy it a lot more and to really not really like bask in the accomplishments, but like really like enjoy the team is in such an amazing place. I mean, obviously the pay equity part was amazing. I mean, my paychecks will be a lot bigger, which will I'll just welcome that. That's totally great. But I think too, just trying to continue to pay it forward to the next generation and to, you know, use all the knowledge and experience that I have, you know, on and off the field to give to them in the most authentic way that I can. I don't want to be like, Hey kids, when I was, you know, this old, that never really seems to work, but hopefully just, you know, through my experience and continuing to enjoy the game as much as possible, you know, knowing that this will likely be, you know, last year, one of, one of the last years, just trying to really enjoy every moment and realize what a, a special opportunity that I have to be playing for as long as I have, um, to see the game change in so many ways year after year after year. And undoubtedly this world cup will be the best one yet as all of them seem to be. I'm just so grateful for everything that you've done for women's sports. I think you very much picked up the baton from Billie Jean King and have really changed the world for so many people. Thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to know more about Megan Rapino, a good place to start is her memoir, One Life. You can also see more about the business she now has with her fiancé, Sue Bird, at atouchmore.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This week, the TED Audio Collective is releasing a bunch of great episodes about sports in celebration of the launch of a new podcast, Good Sport with Jody Avergan. It's a show that is making the case for sports as one of the best ways to understand the world. Check out Good Sport wherever you're listening to this. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.